Growing numbers of federal employees are about to come under what's known as continuous vetting. Public databases automatically monitored by security officials to make sure you haven't been criminally charged or incurred big debt or something like that. Those with national security clearance are mostly under continuous vetting already. Now the Office of Personnel Management plans to extend that to feds with so-called non-sensitive public trust positions. How should agencies prepare and how should you prepare? We get insight now from the managing partner of the Tully Rinky Law Firm, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you back. Tom, glad to be with you today. Continuous vetting is already in place, as we said at the top, with national security clearance people. What do they exactly mean by non-sensitive public trust? That sounds contrary. That sounds contradictory. So you have to understand continuous evaluation, the vetting process, in a broader context. And this has spread progressively to other areas of federal activity, not even uh, just employment. So with respect to public trust, think of the pyramid of federal access. You have credentialing, that's your badge that gets you in. That's one level of review. Next level up is suitability, whether you are deemed suitable to be a federal worker employed uh, either as a contractor or as an employee or as a service member. And then the top of the pyramid is what most people focus on, whether you are eligible for access to classified information. People forget that you still go through some review at all levels of federal employment. It doesn't have to necessarily involve cleared work. So as they do the vetting process, if there are concerns that trigger even just your suitability, you may end up excluded from federal work in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have anticipated if you uh, were avoiding classified work. Some people just stay in certain types of employment because they know they got a little rickety record and they think, well, if I don't go for a clearance, then I don't have to worry about it. Well, not so anymore. They may catch you in a suitability review. Got it. And so for agencies who will have employees coming under this, it sounds like they're going to have to make some heavy preparations. What do they need to do to get people into whatever system is used here? So actually placing the person in the system is not that difficult for the agency human relations office, if we're talking public trust, or the security office, if we're talking security clearance eligibility. The bigger challenge is getting the workforce prepared to be under this system. And frankly, uh, federal agencies are behind the eight ball here. They've been slow on the training side of this. And you just can't leave this up to computerized training, the PowerPoint slides that people just click on things and ignore it. And the uh, training is automated and it's not very effective. So they haven't gotten the word out to people how they need to understand that the ways they could nod and wink about rules in the past can't be done anymore. So in the past, once you got through your suitability review, people could slack off and not abide by what are called the factors, suitability factors. And then they would think, okay, well, I'll just catch up with it the next time I go for a new job. And you may not go for a new job again. You may stay in the same job for a very long time. And so you're in and you don't have to worry about your behavior. Now with continuous vetting, your behavior can come back to you again, and then you're going to have to go through what's called a suitability review, which means you get a a set of interrogatories and you have to explain your financial records or an encounter with law enforcement. And that doesn't mean that you have to be charged or arrested to have a concern. Somebody could uh, challenge your suitability simply by a police response to your house. I've had clients just put in a world of misery by well-intentioned relatives who called the police when there was a, you know, a fight between two brothers at a Memorial Day picnic. 
And then the next thing we know, the one brother who's uh, under the suitability vetting rules is, is now got to explain the fact that he threw a punch at his brother uh, at, a, at a barbecue. You didn't have to concern yourself about this 20, 30 years ago, but, but now it is an issue. So the training has lagged, and that's what supervisors and managers have to supervise and manager and manage in the old school way. They actually have to reach out and work with their employees to tell them that, look, every time, 24-7, on the clock, you have no private life. Your actions are reviewable as a federal employee, and people have to internalize that. We're speaking with attorney Dan Meyer. He's managing partner of Tully Rinky. And what is the mechanism to prevent just not only capriciousness, but also inconsistency from agency to agency on what to call people in for, as you say, for these interrogatories? The only thing providing consistency now is the algorithm. I hate to tell you, but artificial intelligence is here and it's already governing our lives. So to the extent that the algorithm is set to look at certain types of debt, for instance, on a credit report, then there's going to be a gleaning of all credit reports that show a certain level of short-term revolving debt. I tell my clients who are non-Intel community that they don't want credit card debt higher than 12000 I used to tell them 20000 but I think the numbers come down. I don't know that that's what the algorithm triggers. I just know that I have more clients over 12000 with financial issues that they're sorting out with security and with HR than I have below 12000 For somebody in the intelligence community, zero. No revolving debt. You have to pay off your credit cards every month or else you're on a track for a collision with security. So part of the challenge there is people need to adjust their behavior so that they meet the specs of an algorithm we don't really know the details of. But the consistency issue is a challenge because once that dragnet occurs and the emails go out to security, security does have an option or HR has an option whether to challenge or whether not to challenge. And there's a lot of discretion baked into the process. And the Supreme Court has taken a pass on reviewing this. So the Article Three judges are really all out of the stadium for this game. So it's really about your relationship with your agency that determines whether you get reviewed or not. So you just have to think every once in a while. Uh, I tell my clients, think about how you look in the agency. Step back 50 feet away from yourself in your head and look back at yourself and think, how do I appear to my security office and my HR office? And if you are a good agency citizen and you're valued and you're constructive and you're chipper and cheery, you do fine. But if you're idiosyncratic, the system could start to question you and you might end up having to defend yourself. The vast majority of which in those cases, the employee prevails. That's the other thing to remember is that the number of people who are denied suitability and even denied security clearances is still really small. You just don't want to have to go through that process of defending your employment. Yeah. So how far should the individual employee go in controlling his or her private life if it's not criminal, if it's not something that in the agency's view could subject them to blackmail or to bribery, you know, if they have to pay a debt or this kind of thing, where does it end? And, you know, how far do you need to really think about what you do in your private life? First thing you have to recognize is the old myth that federal employment was somehow more secure than private employment is a myth, okay? What keeps you in a 
public employment job is the laziness of management. That's what it is. I understood this second and third year I worked for the defense inspector general, and I used to review these cases. And I realized very early on that it was the laziness of management, not the actions of the employee, that decided whether somebody in the end was working for the Defense Department or not. Uh, Management is overtaxed, too much going on. They want to leave at 3 o'clock every afternoon, and so they don't do their job properly, and that gives the employee an out. That's an awful thing to count on if you're a public employee. So you need to, in the case of suitability, you need to read the regulations once a year and tailor your actions to those regulations. The problem with that, Tom, is that they've never issued separate regulations for suitability. If you look in the federal code, it gives no guidance whatsoever. So what I tell my clients is whether you're under a security clearance or not, every year you go to a document called SEED4, S-E-A-D-4. If you Google it, SEED4 with the word security, up it comes, you want the 2017 version And I tell my clients every year, the week of your birthday, don't read it on your birthday. That's kind of dorky. But if the week of your birthday, reread seed form, surprised how many people don't read it at any time in their federal career. That is the code that you have promised to live by. Every suitability factor maps back to one of those guidelines. Every security clearance, security concern maps back to those guidelines. And that's where you start tailoring your life. And I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a client, great client, who was rather successful at gambling. It's legal, right? You can go to National Harbor. You can go up to Foxborough. There's all sorts of places you can go and gamble. And uh, for many years, I had a security clearance. And then one day, gets an inquiry from the security office. And what happened? Well, there's an automated process. If you win or lose more than $10,000, $10,001, Off goes a message to the Treasury Department's financial crimes database. Gets logged in, not as a crime, but as, you know, some sort of activity you take note of. If the person has a security clearance, zingo, it goes over to the security officer. Next thing you know, you're explaining, you know, your winnings. And the vast majority of gamblers can explain that, but there's a risk assessment that then takes place. The heartbreaking one is the domestic violence issues. Sure. You know, we've gone out of the way to report domestic violence, which is good because not enough of it was reported in the old days. But now that means something that is really, really minor. Shouting through the wall of a condominium can be reported by a neighbor, and the next thing you know, your federal job is in jeopardy. So what I tell clients is take control of your life. Frankly, if you can afford it, live in a single detached home in which you control all the factors. I don't want my clients renting out to people and having people living in because then you bring their lifestyle into yours and that could lead to all sorts of complications. Uh, I don't want my clients subletting from somebody else because then then your landlord's life is, you know, part of your life if you're actually living in the facility. Take your debt down to as low as possible and then try to conform things as most of those guidelines and that way you don't have to go through the review. If you do have to go through the review, Start saving up your shekels because I think you need counsel. I'm a lawyer. I, I'm putting in a business pitch here, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, you want to have the resources sure. available so that you're not guessing. Because the worst cases I get, somebody could have gotten advice very early on at a very low level of resourcing and everything would have been fine. But they delayed and they waited and they got a hold of me 18 months later. And then we got a world of mess on our hands. 
And one more time, the name of that document people should read? Yeah, it's an acronym. Capital S as in Sierra, capital E as in Echo, capital A as in Alpha, capital D as in Delta, and then the number four. And then if you type that into the browser and put in the word security, up comes the 2017 version. That's what you want to read. Okay. We'll take a look. Maybe there's a pocket version. Attorney Dan Meyer is managing partner of Tully Rinky. Thanks so much for joining me. Okay, Tom. Have a good day. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive continuously. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era, 
thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.